Section 10 of The Modern Scottish Minstrel, Volume 1, by Charles Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Cherley. Alexander Wilson. The author of the celebrated American Ornithology is entitled to an honourable commemoration as one of the minstrels of his native land. Alexander Wilson was born at Paisley on the 6th of July, 1766. His father had for some time carried on a small trade as a distiller, but the son was destined by his parents for the clerical profession in the National Church, a scheme which was frustrated by the death of his mother in his tenth year, leaving a large family of children to the sole care of his father. He had, however, considerably profited by the instruction already received at school, and having derived from his mother a taste for music and a relish for books, he invoked the muse in solitude, and improved his mind by miscellaneous reading. His father contracted a second marriage when Alexander had reached his thirteenth year, and it became necessary that he should prepare himself for entering upon some handicraft employment. He became an apprentice to his brother-in-law, William Duncan, a weaver in his native town, and on completing his indenture he wrought as a journeyman during the three following years, in the towns of Paisley, Lochwinnoch, and Queensferry. But the occupation of weaving, which had from the first been unsuitable to his tastes, growing altogether irksome, he determined to relinquish it for a vocation which, if in some respects scarcely more desirable, afforded him ample means of gratifying his natural desire of becoming familiar with the topography of his native country. He provided himself with a pack, as a peddler, and in this capacity, in company with his brother-in-law, continued for three years to lead a wandering life. His devotedness to verse-making had continued unabated from boyhood. He had written verses at the loom, and had become an enthusiastic votary of the muse during his peregrinations with his pack. He was now in his twenty-third year, and with the buoyancy of an ardent youth, he thought of offering to the public a volume of his poems by subscription. In this attempt he was not successful, nor would any bookseller listen to proposals of publishing the lucubrations of an obscure peddler. In 1790 he at length contrived to print his poems at Paisley, on his own account, in the hope of being able to dispose of them along with his other wares. But his attempt was not more successful than his original scheme, so that he was compelled to return to his father's house at Lochwinnoch, and resume the obnoxious shuttle. His aspirations for poetical distinction were not, however, subdued. He heard of the institution of the Forum, a debating society established in Edinburgh by some literary aspirants, and learning, in 1791, that an early subject of discussion was the comparative merits of Ramsay and Ferguson as Scottish poets, he prepared to take a share in the competition. By doubling his hours of labour at the loom, he procured the means of defraying his travelling expenses, and, arriving in time for the debate in the forum, he repeated a poem which he had prepared, entitled The Laurel Disputed, in which he gave the preference to Ferguson. He remained several weeks in Edinburgh and printed his poem. To Dr. Anderson's B, he contributed several poems and a prose essay entitled The Solitary Philosopher. Finding no encouragement to settle in the metropolis, he once more returned to his father's house in the West. 
He now formed the acquaintance of Robert Burns, who testified his esteem for him both as a man and a poet. In 1792 he published anonymously his popular ballad of Watty and Meg, which he had the satisfaction to find regarded as worthy of the Ayrshire bard. The star of the poet was now promising to be in the ascendant, but an untoward event ensued. In the ardent enthusiasm of his temperament, he was induced to espouse in verse the cause of the Paisley handloom operatives in a dispute with their employers, and to satirize in strong invective a person of irreproachable reputation. For this offence he was prosecuted before the sheriff, who sentenced him to be imprisoned for a few days, and publicly to burn his own poem in front of the jail. This satire was entitled The Shark, or Long Mills Detected. Like many other independents, he mistook anarchy in France for the dawn of liberty in Europe, and his sentiments becoming known, he was so vigilantly watched by the authorities that he found it was no longer expedient for him to reside in Scotland. He resolved to emigrate to America, and, contriving by four months' extra labour and living on a shilling weekly to earn his passage money, he sailed from Port Patrick to Belfast, and from thence to Newcastle in the state of Delaware where he arrived on the 14th of July, 1794. During the voyage he had slept on deck, and when he landed his finances consisted only of a few shillings. Yet with a cheerful heart he walked to Philadelphia, a distance of thirty-three miles, with only his fowling-piece on his shoulder. He shot a red-headed woodpecker by the way, an omen of his future pursuits, for hitherto he had devoted no attention to the study of ornithology. He was first employed by a copper-plate printer in Philadelphia, but quitted this occupation for the loom, at which he worked about a year in Philadelphia and at Shepherdston, in Virginia. In 1795 he traversed a large portion of the state of New Jersey as a peddler, keeping a journal, a practice which he had followed during his wandering life in Scotland. He now adopted the profession of a schoolmaster, and was successively employed in this vocation at Frankfurt in Pennsylvania, at Marston, and at Bloomfield, in New Jersey. In preparing himself for the instruction of others, he essentially extended his own acquaintance with classical learning and mathematical science, and by occasional employment as a land surveyor, he somewhat improved his finances. In 1801 he accepted the appointment of teacher in a seminary in King's Essing, on the river of Schulkill, about four miles from Philadelphia a situation which, though attended with limited emolument, proved the first step in his path to eminence. He was within a short distance of the residence of William Bartram, the great American naturalist, with whom he became intimately acquainted. He also formed the friendship of Alexander Lawson, an emigrant engraver, who initiated him in the art of etching, colouring, and engraving. Discovering an aptitude in the accurate delineation of birds, he was led to the study of ornithology, with which he became so much interested that he projected a work descriptive with drawings of all the birds of the Middle States and even of the Union. About this period he became a contributor to the literary magazine, conducted by Mr. Brockton Brown, and to Denny's portfolio. Along with a nephew and another friend, Wilson made a pedestrian tour to the Falls of Niagara, in October 1804, and on his return published in the Portfolio 
a poetical narrative of his journey, entitled The Foresters. A production surpassing his previous efforts, and containing some sublime apostrophes. But his energies were now chiefly devoted to the accomplishment of the grand design he had contemplated. Disappointed in obtaining the cooperation of his friend Mr. Lawson, who was alarmed at the extent of his projected adventure, and likewise frustrated in obtaining pecuniary assistance from the President Jefferson, on which he had some reason to calculate, he persevered in his attempts himself, drawing, etching, and colouring the requisite illustrations. In 1806 he was employed as assistant editor of a new edition of Rees's Cyclopaedia by Mr. Samuel Bradford, bookseller in Philadelphia, who rewarded his services with a liberal salary, and undertook, at his own risk, the publication of his Ornithology. The first volume of the work appeared in September 1808, and immediately after its publication the author personally visited, in the course of two different expeditions, the eastern and southern states, in quest of subscribers. These journeys were attended with a success scarcely adequate to the privations which were experienced in their prosecution. But the ornithology otherwise obtained a wide circulation, and, excelling in point of illustration, every production that had yet appeared in America gained for the author universal commendation. In January 1810 his second volume appeared, and in a month after he proceeded to Pittsburgh, and from thence, in a small skiff, made a solitary voyage down to the Ohio, a distance of nearly six hundred miles. During this lonely and venturous journey, he experienced relaxation in the composition of a poem, which afterwards appeared under the title of The Pilgrim. In 1813, after encountering numerous hardships and perils, which an enthusiast only could have endured, he completed the publication of the seventh volume of his great work, but the sedulous attention requisite in the preparation of the plates of the eighth volume, and the effect of a severe cold, caught in rashly throwing himself into a river to swim in pursuit of a rare bird, brought on him a fatal dysentery, which carried him off on the 23rd of August, 1813, in his forty-eighth year. He was interred in the cemetery of the Swedish Church, Southwark, Philadelphia, where a plain marble monument has been erected to his memory. A ninth volume was added to the ornithology by Mr. George Ord, an intimate friend of the deceased naturalist, and three supplementary volumes have been published in folio by Charles-Lucien Bonaparte, uncle of the present emperor of the French. Amidst his extraordinary deserts as a naturalist, the merits of Alexander Wilson as a poet have been somewhat overlooked, his poetry, it may be remarked, though unambitious of ornament, is bold and vigorous in style, and, when devoted to satire, is keen and vehement. The ballad of Watty and Meg, though exception may be taken to the moral, is an admirable picture of human nature, and one of the most graphic narratives of the taming of a shrew in the language. Alan Cunningham writes, It has been excelled by none in lively, graphic fidelity of touch, Whatever was present to his eye and manifest to his ear, he could paint with a life and a humour which Burns seems alone to excel. In private life, Wilson was a model of benevolence and of the social virtues. He was devoid of selfishness, active in beneficence, and incapable of resentment. Before his departure for America, he waited on every one whom he conceived he had offended by his juvenile escapades, and begged their forgiveness. 
He did not hesitate to reprove Burns for the levity too apparent in some of his poems. To his aged father, who survived till the year 1816, he sent remittances of money as often as he could, and at much inconvenience and pecuniary sacrifice he established the family of his brother-in-law on a farm in the States. He was sober even to abstinence, and was guided in all his transactions by correct Christian principles. In person he was remarkably handsome. His countenance was intelligent, and his eye sparkling. He never attained riches, but few Scotsmen have left more splendid memorials of their indomitable perseverance. Connell and Flora Dark lowers the night o'er the wide stormy main, Till mild rosy morning rise cheerful again. Alas, morn returns to revisit the shore, But Connell returns to his Flora no more. For see, on yon mountain, the dark cloud of death, O'er Connell's lone cottage lies low on the heath, While bloody and pale, on a far distant shore, He lies to return to his Flora no more. Ye light fleeting spirits that glide o'er the steep, Oh, would ye but waft me across the wild deep, There fearless I'd mix in the battle's loud roar, I'd die with my Connell, and leave him no more. Matilda Ye dark rugged rocks that recline o'er the deep, Ye breezes that sigh o'er the main, Here shelter me under your cliffs while I weep, and cease while ye hear me complain. For distant, alas, from my dear native shore, and far from each friend now I be, and wide is the merciless ocean that roars between my Matilda and me. How blessed were the times when together we strayed, while Phoebe shone silent above, or leaned by the border of Cartha's green side, and talked the whole evening of love. Arunda saw nature lay wrapped up in peace, nor noise could our pleasures annoy, save Cartha's hoarse brawling conveyed by the breeze that soothed us to love and to joy. If haply some youth had his passion expressed, and praised the bright charms of her face, what horrors unceasing revolved through my breast, while sighing I stole from the place. For where is the eye that could view her alone, the ear that could list to her strain, nor wish the adorable nymph for his own, nor double the pangs I sustain? Thou moon that now brightenest those regions above, how oft hast thou witnessed my bliss, while breathing my tender expressions of love, I sealed each kind vow with a kiss. Ah, then, how I joyed while I gazed on her charms, what transports flew swift through my heart. I pressed the dear beautiful maid in my arms, nor dreamed that we ever should part. But now, from the dear, from the tenderest maid, by fortune unfeelingly torn, mid strangers who wonder to see me so sad, in secret I wander forlorn. And oft, while drear midnight assembles her shades, and silence pours sleep from her throne. Pale, lonely, and pensive, I steal through the glades, and sigh midst the darkness my moan. In vain to the town I retreat for relief, in vain to the groves I complain. 
Bells, coxcombs, and uproar can ne'er soothe my grief, and solitude nurses my pain. Still absent from her whom my bosom loves best, I languish in misery and care. Her presence should banish each woe from my heart, but her absence, alas, is despair. Ye dark rugged rocks that recline o'er the deep, ye breezes that sigh o'er the main, O oh, shelter me under your cliffs while I weep, and cease while ye hear me complain. Far distant, alas, from my dear native shore, and far from each friend now I be. And wide is the merciless ocean that roars between my Matilda and me. Ochtertool From the village of Leslie, with a heart full of glee, and my pack on my shoulders, I rambled out free, resolved that same evening, as Luna was full, to lodge ten miles distant in old Ochtertool. Through many a lone cottage and farmhouse I steered, took their money, and off with my budget I sheared. The road I explored out, without form or rule, still asking the nearest to old Ochtertool. At length I arrived at the edge of the town, as Phoebus behind a high mountain went down, the clouds gathered dreary, the weather blew foul, and I hugged myself safe now in old Ochtertool. An inn I inquired out, a lodging desired, but the landlady's pertness seemed instantly fired, for she saucy replied as she sat carding wool, I ne'er kept sick lodgers in old Ochtertool. With scorn I soon left her to live on her pride, but asking was told there was none else beside, except an old weaver who now kept a school, and these were the whole that were in Ochtertool. To his mansion I scampered and rapped at the door. He oped, but as soon as I dared to implore, he shut it like thunder and uttered a howl that rung through each corner of old Ochtertool. Deprived of all shelter, through darkness I trode, till I came to a ruined old house by the road. Here the night I will spend, and, inspired by the owl, my wrath I'll vent forth upon old Dr. Toole. Carolina Baroness Nairn Carolina Oliphant was born in the old mansion of Gask, in the county of Perth, on the 16th of July, 1766. She was the third daughter and the fifth child of Lawrence Oliphant of Gask, who had espoused his cousin Margaret Robertson, a daughter of Duncan Robinson of Struan, and his wife a daughter of the fourth Lord Nairn. The Oliphants of Gask were cadets of the formerly noble house of Oliphant, whose ancestor, Sir William Oliphant of Aberdalgie, a puissant knight, acquired distinction in the beginning of the fourteenth century by defending the castle of Stirling against a formidable siege by the first Edward. The family of Gask were devoted Jacobites. The paternal grandfather of Carolina Oliphant had attended Prince Charles Edward as aide-de-camp during his disastrous campaign of 1745-6, to and his spouse had indicated her sympathy in his cause by cutting out a lock of his hair on the occasion of his accepting the hospitality of the family mansion. The portion of hair is preserved at Gask, and Carolina Oliphant, in her song, The Old House, has thus celebrated the gentle deed of her progenitor. The lady too, se genti, there sheltered Scotland's heir, 
and clipped a lock wi her ain hand frae his lang yellow hair. The estate of Gask escaped forfeiture, but the father of Carolina did not renounce the Jacobite sentiments of his ancestors. He named the subject of this memoir Carolina, in honour of Prince Charles Edward, and his prevailing topic of conversation was the reiterated expression of his hope that the king would get his ain. He would not permit the names of the reigning monarch and his queen to be mentioned in his presence, and when impaired eyesight compelled him to seek the assistance of his family in reading the newspapers, he angrily reproved the reader if the German lady and his lady were designated otherwise than by the initial letters K and Q. This extreme Jacobitism, at a period when the crime was scarcely to be dreaded, was reported to George III, who is related to have confessed his respect for a man who had so consistently maintained his political sentiments. In her youth, Carolina Oliphant was singularly beautiful, and was known in her native district by the poetical designation of the Flower of Strathern. She was as remarkable for the precocity of her intellect as she was celebrated for the elegance of her person. Descended by her mother from a family which, in one instance, at least, had afforded some evidence of poetical talents, and possessed of a correct musical ear, she very early composed verses for her favourite melodies. To the development of her native genius, her juvenile condition abundantly contributed. The locality of her birthplace, rich in landscape scenery, and associated with family traditions and legends of curious and chivalric adventure, might have been sufficient to promote, in a mind less fertile than her own, sentiments of poesy. In the application of her talents she was influenced by another incentive. A loose ribaldry tainted the songs and ballads which circulated among the peasantry, and she was convinced that the diffusion of a more wholesome minstrelsy would essentially elevate the moral tone of the community. Thus, while still young, she commenced to purify the older melodies, and to compose new songs which were ultimately destined to occupy an ample share of the national heart. The occasion of an agricultural dinner in the neighbourhood afforded her a fitting opportunity of making trial of her success in the good work which she had begun. To the president of the meeting she sent, anonymously, her verses entitled The Ploughman, and the production, being publicly read, was received with warm approbation, and was speedily put to music. She was thus encouraged to proceed in her self-imposed task, and to this early period of her life may be ascribed some of her best lyrics. The Laird of Cockpen and The Land of the Leal, at the close of the century, were sung in every district of the kingdom. Carolina Oliphant had many suitors for her hand. She gave a preference to William Murray Nairn, her maternal cousin, who had been Baron Nairn, barring the attainder of the title on account of the Jacobitism of the last baron. The marriage was celebrated in June 1806. At this period, Mr. Nairn was Assistant Inspector General of Barracks in Scotland, and held the rank of Major in the Army. By Act of Parliament, on the 17th of June 1824, the attainder of the family was removed, and the title of baron being conferred on Major Nairn. This measure is reported to have been passed on the strong recommendation of George the Fourth, His Majesty having learned, during his state visit to Scotland in 1822, that the song of The Attainted Scottish Nobles was the composition of Lady Nairn. The song is certainly one of the best apologies for Jacobitism. 
On the ninth of July, 1830, Lady Nairn was bereaved of her husband, to whom she had proved an affectionate wife. Her care had for several years been assiduously bestowed on the proper rearing of her only child, William, who, being born in 1808, had reached his twenty-second year, when he succeeded to the title on the death of his father. This young nobleman warmly reciprocated his mother's affectionate devotedness, and, making her the associate of his manhood, proved a source of much comfort to her in her bereavement. In 1837 he resolved, in her society, to visit the continent, in the hope of being recruited by change of climate from an attack of influenza caught in the spring of that year. But the change did not avail. He was seized with a violent cold at Brussels, which, after an illness of six weeks, proved fatal. He died in that city on the 7th of December, 1837. Deprived of both her husband and her only child, a young nobleman of so much promise, and of a singular Christian worth, Lady Nairn, though submitting to the mysterious dispensations with becoming resignation, did not regain her wonted buoyancy of spirit. Old age was rapidly approaching, those years in which the words of the inspired sage, I have no pleasure in them, are too frequently called forth by the pressure of human infirmities. But this amiable lady did not sink under the load of affliction and of years. She mourned in hope and wept in faith, while the afflictions which had mingled with her cup of blessings tended to prevent her lingering too intently on the past, the remembrance of a life devoted to deeds of piety and virtue was a solace greater than any other earthly object could impart, leading her to hail the future with sentiments of joyful anticipation. During the last years of her life, unfettered by worldly ties, she devoted all her energies to the service of heaven and to the advancement of Christian truth. Her beautiful ode, Would You Be Young Again, was composed in 1842 and enclosed in a letter to a friend. It is signally expressive of the pious resignation and Christian hope of the author. After the important era of her marriage, she seems to have relinquished her literary ardour. But in the year 1821, Mr. Robert Purdy, an enterprising music-seller in Edinburgh, having resolved to publish a series of the more approved national songs, made application to several ladies celebrated for their musical skill, with the view of obtaining their assistance in the arrangement of the melodies. To these ladies was known the secret of Lady Nairn's devotedness to Scottish song, enjoying as they did her literary correspondence and private intimacy. And in consenting to aid the publisher in his undertaking, they calculated on contributions from their accomplished friend. They had formed a correct estimate. Lady Nairn, whose extreme diffidence had hitherto proved a barrier to the fulfilment of the best wishes of her heart, in effecting the reformation of the national minstrelsy, consented to transmit pieces for insertion, on the express condition that her name and rank, and every circumstance connected with her history, should be kept in profound secrecy. The condition was carefully observed, so that, Although the publication of The Scottish Minstrel extended over three years, and she had several personal interviews and much correspondence with the publisher and his editor, Mr. R. A. Smith, both these individuals remained ignorant of her real name. She had assumed the signature B.B. in her correspondence with Mr. Purdy, who appears to have been entertained by the discovery, communicated in confidence, that the name of his contributor was Mrs. Bogan of Bogan and by this designation he subsequently addressed her. 
the nom de guerre of the two B's, is attached to the greater number of Lady Nairn's contributions to the Scottish minstrel. The new collection of minstrelsy, unexceptionable as it was in the words attached to all the airs, commanded a wide circulation and excited general attention. The original contributions were especially commended, and some of them were forthwith sung by professed vocalists in the principal towns. Much speculation arose respecting the authorship, and various conjectures were supported, each with plausible arguments, by the public journalists. In these circumstances, Lady Nairn experienced painful alarm, lest, by any inadvertence on the part of her friends, the origin of her songs should be traced. While the publication of The Minstrel was proceeding, her correspondents received repeated injunctions to adopt every caution in preserving her incognita. She was even desirous that her sex might not be made known. I beg the publisher will make no mention of a lady, she wrote to one of her correspondents. As you observe, the more mystery the better, and still the balance is in favour of the lords of creation. I cannot help, in some degree, undervaluing beforehand what is said to be a feminine production. The Scottish Minstrel was completed in 1824 in six royal octavo volumes, forming one of the best collections of the Scottish melodies. It was in the full belief that Mrs. Bogan was her real name that the following compliment was paid to Lady Nairn by Messrs. Purdy and R. A. Smith in the advertisement to the last volume of the work. In particular, the editors would have felt happy in being permitted to enumerate the many original and beautiful verses that adorn their pages, for which they are indebted to the author of the much-admired song, The Land o' the Leal, but they fear to wound a delicacy which shrinks from all observation. Subsequent to the appearance of the Scottish minstrel, Lady Nairn did not publish any lyrics, and she was eminently successful in preserving her incognita. No critic ventured to identify her as the celebrated B.B., and it was only whispered among a few that she had composed The Land of the Leal. The mention of her name publicly as the author of this beautiful ode, on one occasion, had signally disconcerted her. While she was resident in Paris in 1842, she writes to an intimate friend in Edinburgh on this subject. A Scottish lady here, Lady Blank, with whom I never met in Scotland, is so good as, among perfect strangers, to denounce me as the origin of the land of the Leal. I cannot trace it, but very much dislike, as ever, any kind of publicity. The extreme diffidence and shrinking modesty of the amiable author continued to the close of her life. She never divulged, beyond a small circle of confidential friends, the authorship of a single verse. The songs published in her youth had been given to others, but, as in the case of Lady Anne Barnard, these assignments caused her no uneasiness. She experienced much gratification in finding her simple minstrelsy supplanting the coarse and demoralizing rhymes of a former period, and this mental satisfaction she preferred to fame. The philanthropic efforts of Lady Nairn were not limited to the purification of the national minstrelsy. Her benevolence extended towards the support of every institution likely to promote the temporal comforts or advance the spiritual interests of her countrymen. Her contributions to the public charities were ample, and she did good by stealth, and blushed to find it fame. In an address delivered at Edinburgh on the 29th of December, 1845, 
Dr. Chalmers, referring to the exertions which had been made for the supply of religious instruction in the district of the West Port of Edinburgh, made the following remarks regarding Lady Nairn, who was then recently deceased. Let me speak now as to the countenance we have received. I am now at liberty to mention a very noble benefaction which I received about a year ago. Inquiry was made at me by a lady, mentioning that she had a sum at her disposal, and that she wished to apply it to charitable purposes, and she wanted me to enumerate a list of charitable objects in proportion to the estimate I had of their value. Accordingly, I furnished her with a scale of about five or six charitable objects. The highest in the scale were those institutions which had for their design the Christianizing of the people at home, and I also mentioned to her, in connection with the Christianizing at home, what we were doing at the Westport. And there came to me from her, in the course of a day or two, no less a sum than three hundred pounds. She is now dead, she is now in her grave, and her works do follow her. When she gave me this noble benefaction, she laid me under strict injunctions of secrecy, and, accordingly, I did not mention her name to any person. But after she was dead, I begged of her nearest heir that I might be allowed to proclaim it, because I thought that her example, so worthy to be followed, might influence others in imitating her. And I am happy to say that I am now at liberty to state that it was Lady Nairn of Perthshire. It enabled us, at the expense of three hundred and thirty pounds, to purchase sites for schools and a church, and we have got a site in the very heart of the locality, with a very considerable extent of ground for a washing-green, a washing-house, and a playground for the children, so that we are a good step in advance towards the completion of our parochial economy. After the death of her son, and till within two years of her own death, Lady Nairn resided chiefly on the continent, and frequently in Paris, her health had for several years been considerably impaired, and latterly she had recourse to a wheeled chair. In the mansion of Gask, on the 27th of October, 1845, she gently sunk into her rest at the advanced age of seventy-nine years. Some years subsequent to this event, it occurred to the relatives and literary friends of the deceased baroness that as there could no longer be any reason for retaining her incognita, Full justice should be done to her memory by the publication of a collected edition of her works. This scheme was partially executed in an elegant folio entitled Lays from Strathern by Carolina Baroness Nairn, arranged with symphonies and accompaniments for the pianoforte by Finlay Dunn. It bears the imprint of London and has no date. In this work, of which a new edition will speedily be published by Messrs. Patterson, Music Sellers, Edinburgh, are contained seventy songs, but the larger proportion of the author's lyrics still remain in manuscript. From her representatives we have received permission to select her best lyrics for the present work, and to insert several pieces hitherto unpublished. Of the lays which we have selected, several are new versions to old airs. The majority, though unknown as the compositions of Lady Nairn, are already familiar in the drawing-room and the cottage. For winning simplicity, graceful expression, and exquisite pathos, her compositions are especially remarkable. But when her muse prompts to humour, the laugh is sprightly and overpowering. In society, Lady Nairn was reserved and unassuming. Her countenance, naturally beautiful, wore, in her mature years, a somewhat pensive cast, and the characteristic by which she was known 
consisted in her enthusiastic love of music. It may be added that she was fond of the fine arts, and was skilled in the use of the pencil. End of section 10. Recording by Charlie, B.C., Canada.